Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. So, Lisa, one of the names that's uh, been under a little bit of pressure that was once a darling is Facebook. Uh, the stock is off about uh, 10% over the last uh, 12 months. Uh, it's well off its high of $220 a share now, uh, trading at about $160 a share. And I think one of the, the major issues has been the regulatory risk associated with this name. I think, uh, you know, the company has really faced pressure from users and from regulators concerned about data privacy and data integrity. And it really has been weighing on the stock. One thing that I think is interesting is, is the pressure on the stock really the fact of data privacy and concerns by consumers, or is it really a public relations disaster and the fact that Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg have not addressed some of the concerns head on, been transparent with what they plan to do, and push forward with a concrete plan? I mean, honestly, Congress isn't exactly about to regulate these companies, but certainly there has been a lack of response that has certainly uh, not been to the pleasure of shareholders. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think they have been losing and are losing the public relations fight. They were certainly late to respond to some of these uh, issues. Uh, and then arguably their response, uh, one, once they made one, wasn't forceful enough. And there's certainly concerns there uh, about any regulatory risk, not just for Facebook, but for social media in general. The last thing tech investors want is uh, U.S. regulatory oversight on their business. You know, honestly, though, I have to wonder what kind of pressure there is to regulate these companies, because there's uh, sort of a trade-off with a lot of uh, people being happy to get the free services of a Facebook or an Instagram right. uh, in order to give up their privacy. Someone who's delved a lot into this is Roger McNamee. He's co-founder of Elevation Partners in Menlo Park, California. He also performs in a band Moon Alice where he plays the uh, bass and the guitar he just wrote a new book Zucked Waking Up to the Facebook Catastrophe and uh, Roger we're, we're so happy to have you here you mentored Mark uh, Zuckerberg you were part of the inception of Facebook and now you're speaking out against this company why so Lisa it's really simple I met Mark when he was 22 years old and Facebook was two years old back in 2006 I helped him solve a problem for three years thereafter, I was one of his advisors. I helped to bring in Sheryl Sandberg as the chief operating officer. You could not find a bigger cheerleader for Facebook than me. And candidly, I missed a few things that in retrospect, I really wish I had understood better at the time. But in 2016, like what? I started... Well, to be clear, in 20, let me tell you what I saw in 2016, because there were earlier examples of this. But in 2016, I started to see cases where the where bad people, bad actors, were using the advertising tools, the business model, and the algorithms of Facebook to harm innocent people. And they were doing it in civil rights. For example, there was a company that was scraping. Uh, they were using the ad tools to gather data about people who expressed an interest in Black Lives Matter. And they were selling that data to police departments for profit in clear violation of the Fourth Amendment. And Facebook expelled the company, but not until the harm had been done. Then in the Brexit referendum in the United Kingdom, it was very clear that Facebook advertising tools had given a huge advantage to the Leave campaign because the incendiary message that the Leave campaign was using, which was really xenophobic, blaming every problem in the United Kingdom, both real and imagined, on immigrants, and that that message spread so much faster, so much further than the very neutral message of the Remain campaign that 
it was undermining democracy. And then later in the year in 2016, the Department of Housing and Urban Development cited Facebook for advertising tools that allowed discrimination based on race in the housing market. And that's when I reached out to Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg and said, guys, there's something wrong here. The business model, the algorithms are letting bad people harm innocent people. And I spent three months pleading with them, you know, beginning nine days before the election and continuing for three months after. So, Roger, I mean, to that issue, do you think Mark Zuckerberg is a bad guy or is he just tone deaf to this issue? I don't think any of them are bad people. Okay, and here's the problem is it's not just Facebook. The issue is success has blinded them in some really important ways. You know, when these companies started, they were, you know, they had a hacker mentality, you know, move fast and break things. That was Facebook's motto. Right. And that was cute when they were little. But when you're at global scale and your algorithms, your code has more influence on people's lives than the law does, when your product has more influence on politics right. then it than matters anybody a lot. else, at that point you have really serious responsibilities. And if you refuse to take those on, then there's something really, really wrong. And it's not because these are bad people, but it is because they are blind. And it's not just Facebook. So what should they do? So the critical thing here is I don't think they can fix anymore. We have given them two years to stand up and take responsibility. They have to change the business model. We have to change the incentives. We have to basically ask questions that we didn't have to ask for 50 years when technology was completely trustworthy and always made our lives better. Now we have to be skeptical. We have to recognize that these are potentially dangerous tools. And just like a dangerous tool in a factory, just like, you know, like a, the, the instruments a doctor would use for surgery, these are not playthings. You have to be really careful. We have to ask questions we haven't asked before. Like, so, Roger, why, can- is it, why is it legal to sell people personal financial data, right? I mean, that kind of stuff, that kind of invasion of privacy is standard now, and we don't benefit from that. We're actually harmed by it. Wait, hold on a second. This is actually really relevant because we're going to be speaking later about how Google and, uh, or actually, excuse me, Apple and Goldman Sachs are teaming up to create a new credit card that has uh, some kind of seamless connection to the iPhone. And I'm wondering, does that raise concerns to you about privacy and what people are basically jeopardizing? Well, actually, Apple's been one of the good guys on this issue. So their Apple Pay product sends literally the bare minimum of data. So nothing goes to the vendor, and the credit card processor only gets the minimum information for credit card processing. The problem is that the credit card processors, this will be companies like Experian and um, Trans, TransUnion, um, those guys, they then sell that data to anybody who wants to buy it. And that's where the problem occurs. So I think relative to the Apple thing, I think Apple is not a perfect company, but on these issues, they really are on the side of the angels, and they really are trying to help us. And I think if Apple has such a huge advantage over the Android world, which is Samsung and all the other vendors, that it really is better to own an iPhone because they really are protecting you more. But the thing for everybody to remember is we have a lot of power here. This is not inevitable. It's not hopeless. This is going to be a big issue in 2020, and it's going to be a right versus wrong issue, not right versus left. Both political parties are going to be engaged in this because it's it's literally a tiny number of people benefiting against 99.9% of the country being harmed. And and as a consequence, I think there's going to be a lot of really constructive work done, particularly after the 2020 election, to, you know, 
rein in the sale of data, to yeah. rein in, you know, you know all the medical information that you see online yeah. is filled with errors, right? You know, you've got things like YouTube promoting conspiracy theories like, right. like Flat Earth. You've yep. got kids coming home from school and saying World War II never happened. I know. This is like, definitely going to be an ongoing concern. Roger McNamee, I wish we had more time. I'm sorry. We have to leave it there. Roger McNamee, a noted tech venture capitalist, co-founder of Elevation Partners and author of Zucked, Waking Up to the Facebook Catastrophe. So we're hearing more talk about trade discussions between the U.S. and China. No, this is not 2018 or 2017. This is 2019. But here we are, and it sounds like uh, there have been some uh, some measures taken to move forward, at least when it comes to agricultural. Joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios, Andy Brown, Editorial Director for the Bloomberg New Economy Forum. Uh, and Andy, so glad to have you here just give us the latest. What do you think is the most meaningful progress made on trade talks, if any, that you've heard? So we've got a plethora of MOUs under negotiation right now. And it looks like we are going to get some kind of an agreement. The head of the Chinese delegation, Liu He, is supposed to be meeting President Trump on Friday. The big question, as always, is whether or not we're going to get a deal that alters the balance of trade without fundamentally addressing issues around the terms and conditions of trade. Soybeans versus intellectual property. Exactly right. So so initially, I mean, I think that there's a deal on the table for $30 billion a year of Chinese buying U.S. agricultural products, including soybeans and corn. A couple of questions. Is is Thirty billion is that a big big number? It sounds like a big number. Yeah, well, I don't. Is it a big number? I mean, all numbers for China are big, right? It's a huge economy. Is is the world's second largest e- economy? Look, the trade stuff is the easy stuff. This is the low hanging fruit. Okay, actually, China on the trade front is relatively well behaved. It doesn't manipulate its currency really anymore. It roughly it runs a trade balance. It's more or less trade in balance with the rest of the world. It understands it can't borrow growth from the rest of the world because it's too big to grow by exports. And so it is developing domestic consumption as a main driver of growth. So, you know, you could say that in this area is in China's interest to, you know, be nudged along, if you like, by Trump and his negotiating team. So we're likely to see more of that. Sure, that's the easy stuff. China will buy. The question actually is whether it's going to buy additionally or whether it's just going to buy more from the U.S. and less from the from the rest of the world and leave their overall balance unchanged. The other big question is how China is using trade as a negotiating tactic with U.S. allies. Overnight, there was a report out of Reuters that China was restricting coal imports from Australia as a result of perhaps, and this is speculation, uh, the fact that Australia was reluctant to use Huawei and their products in their 5G outgrowth. I'm just wondering, is this a concerted effort by China to go after U.S. allies or anyone who does not embrace Huawei and its technologies? Yeah, you know, this is this is really difficult to divine. I mean, you, you know, is this a random act by a Chinese port or is it a concerted effort to, you know, reduce imports of, of Australian coal? What we have seen, of course, is China lashing out at U.S. allies 
particularly Canada, uh, because it's not gonna, it's, it, it doesn't want to take on the U.S. and muddy the muddy the waters or make the trade talks even more acrimonious than they are. So he's go, they're going after the allies. Now. So basically, they're going to become Canada becomes the whipping boy because the U.S. is too big to abuse. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> Poor Canada. <laughs> Andy, how about some of the, the the real hard issues out there aside from agricultural products? You know, when it's you know data theft, data privacy, the technology theft, and all those types of things, the really key issues, intellectual property, are those even on the table, do you think? Yeah, I mean, China, look, let's be fair. China has made pretty, pretty good progress, I think, on uh, protecting intellectual property. Uh, the main reason it's made progress in that area, because it's good for China, okay? Uh, it, it's Chinese private entrepreneurs that complain about this as much as the foreigners do. So it's in their interest, and so we are seeing progress on that front. We do, however, have to be, we have to moderate our expectations about what the Chinese are able to deliver in terms of changes to their state-run economy, okay? This this problem, access to the Chinese market, privileged, uh, 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 you know, privileges for Chinese state-owned enterprises, this isn't going to be fixed with one trade deal. This is part of a long, protracted, painful process. Andy, I want to go a little bit broader here because I've read a number of essays talking about how the tit for tat that we're seeing is just basically uh, the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the deep conflict between the U.S. and China, which is the battle for supremacy over the global economy, and that it is right now on a path to end up with even more tensions, and and people have hinted at military altercations, etc. Do you think that that is accurate, that what we're seeing right now is a manifestation of tensions that have been building, uh, and that really cannot get resolved in any kind of easy way. Yeah, I think I think that pretty much answers you, you've answered your own question. I mean, um, uh, these these deeper issues of U.S.-China competition for technological supremacy, uh, the industries of the future, artificial intelligence, electric vehicles. That's really the deeper dispute behind what we're seeing now, and 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 it's all playing out. Uh, we talked about we started this conversation by talking about Huawei, and that's where the real battle now is playing out. Okay, so given your decades in China, do you think? that China right now is equipped with the governance and the economy to gain the lead in this battle? Not, not, not only is China equipped, it, it is already in some areas gaining the lead. I mean, it's almost there when it comes to artificial intelligence on, you know, uh, gene editing. It may well be at more advanced than the United States. I mean, in area after area, China is getting close, is getting close to uh, or, you know, is, is right up there, in, you know, at, at the frontiers uh, of, tech, of technology. And that's, what's, that's what has frightened the U.S. And that is what the Huawei battle is all about. Well, who, incent- who has more incentive, in your opinion, uh, to really come to the table and negotiate uh, the very difficult issues? Uh, we see the Chinese economy slowing. Maybe it's slowing even more than we think. Uh, but of course, we have incentives. Yeah, China, of course, the slowing economy puts Xi Jinping under pressure. But look, four decades of development tells China that it's state-owned, it's state-run, state capitalism works for China, all right? The system has delivered rapid growth for decades. It's lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. It's given China great a great deal of, in, of in, in, innovation. And it's not about to abandon all that uh, to Trump. Although, I will say, there are a lot of people who think that President Xi Jinping is actually taking the country backward. 
that's that 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 is that is certainly uh, a widely shared a widely held view uh, in the rest of the world particularly his emphasis on the state uh and the discrimination now that private enterprise in china feel that they're operating under but not necessarily locally sure in china in, in, in absolutely in china yeah so you know on the technology side is this just investment does the u.s just have to step up for investment and because it seems like you know china with the state sponsored really competitive on a technology front china is china is uh, china is 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 super competitive in technology now particularly in these areas that it's identified as being key to the future in the 20 in the 21st century and many people argue that actually the smartest move that the americans could make right now is to focus on their own science focus on technology yep. focus on getting the economy here straightened out building the infrastructure you know building the foundations for success and growth in the, in, in in over the next 20 30 years yep We'll leave it there. Andy Brown, thank you so much for uh, bringing us up to date on what's going on with all things China. Andy's the editorial director of Bloomberg New Economy Forum. Well, after that December meltdown across the markets, 2019 has been a significant turnaround for the equity markets with the S&P up a little over 11% year to date. Uh, to help us get a sense of how much is left in the equity markets, if any, we bring in Randy Frederick. Randy is the Vice President of Trading and Derivatives at the Schwab Center for Financial Research uh, based in Austin, Texas, uh, but joining us in our Bloomberg 1130 studios here today. Uh, Randy, thanks for joining us. So we've Happy had this big turnaround uh, in the equity markets this year. Uh, is it played out? Should I just head to the beach or is there still more work to do this year? Well, what's fascinating, I think, about the turnaround is you think about what's different now versus what was going on in Q4. And really, when you, if you boil it all down to its simplest form, there's really only one big difference, and that is the Fed. Basically, the Fed was, seemed very committed to continuing to raise interest rates, to continuing to shrink its balance sheet in Q4, and they've changed their mind. They're now, I look at the world interest rate probabilities screen on Bloomberg every morning, I was looking at it yesterday, the odds of a rate hike this year are now 0%, according to the market. And the Fed isn't always in line with the markets. The markets tend to be ahead of the Fed, but the Fed seems to have caught up and is now going, yeah, you know, maybe we might not. In fact, the, the odds of a cut are higher than that. So that's the big difference. And so as a result, people don't have to worry about interest rates anymore. And retail investors are still a little cautious, but institutional investors are back on back in the market right now. Paul, to answer the question, yes, both you and I uh, should head to the beach and enjoy yes. ourselves for the rest <laughs> okay. of the year. So just to answer that question and follow through with the thought, uh, Randy, I would love to get your sense. There, there's been a lot of talk about a dissonance between the stock market and the bond market with stocks rallying and doing well and earnings being strong and bond yields still being incredibly low, especially given the fact that the U.S. is selling a lot of debt, deficit is deepening. Do you think there is a disconnect here? Do you think that it's a complete logical progression from the Federal Reserve's dovish stance? Well, there are a lot of factors that play into this, of course, but I think one of the key ones that a lot of people don't think about is the fact that we are a global economy. And if you look at what's going on with bond yields in Europe, I mean, how do you have the interest rates in the U.S. be significantly higher than another stable country like, say, Germany, for example, which are at basically zero? So there's only so far that those two can separate. And as long as yields stay low in Europe, and obviously with the Brexit issue out there floating, uh, there's concerns about a potential recession in the UK, which easily could spill over into the entire European Union. So those rates just simply aren't going to go up that much. And that's going to keep a tether, if you will, on US rates to some extent. 
You mentioned, uh, Randy, you mentioned uh, Brexit and European growth and so on. How much do geopolitical issues, whether it's, you know, China trade negotiations, which are ongoing today with some more news today, Brexit, the uncertainty created by Brexit, how much does that weigh in or factor into your analysis about kind of what what you're uh, telling your clients to do? So for retail investors, I don't think they're that informed or really that clear on exactly the whole Brexit issue and how it all plays out or what it might mean. I think the China issue is one they hear about all the time. And it's mostly because... Everybody in this country that buys things, they can turn them over and they can see made in China. So they know what that means. They know manufacturing jobs have left for the last several decades. They've gone to China. They know that there are tariffs and that things are potentially more expensive now and it could potentially get more expensive. I've been saying for several months since this whole thing started seven, eight, nine months ago that the biggest sort of overhang, if you will, the dark cloud over these markets has been the China issue and that the markets would likely rally sharply if we got some sort of resolution. We hear hints every day and tweets and everything else that we are making progress. Trump has seemed very willing um, just recently to say that, hey, I might extend that deadline March 1st out further as long as we're making progress. And even maybe the grand deal at the end isn't as great as everyone thinks. Ultimately, if it, if it gets off the table, I do think the markets can continue to rally. Now, that said, we've had a pretty substantial rebound in Q1 of this year. So I think some of the optimism about a potential resolution is already built into the market. So the upside is probably not as great. But when you look at how close we are now to where we were at the all-time highs in September of last year, I frankly think the market still has at least that much space to rally if this issue gets resolved sometime over the next couple of months. That's a pretty big call. Let's take all of these macro concerns, ball them up, and talk about making money. I'm looking at the S&P 500 up nearly 11% so far this year. Are you saying that it could go up to, hey, 20% or more uh, in total return for 2019 if there is some resolution to trade? My original thought early or late last year was that we could see high single-digit returns this year. But since we had a substantial correction, nearly a bear market in Q4 of last year, we started out at a much lower level. So to see double-digit returns this year, frankly, like you just said, we're already there. Uh, could we get back to all-time highs? My expectation is we could sometime maybe by Q3, Q4 of this year. I think that's very possible. Okay, so possible to see 20% year-to-date, yeah, 2019 return uh, for the S&P 500. Which of the three major U.S. indices do you expect to outperform? Well, obviously, technology is, in, is a big part of the NASDAQ, and we've seen a pretty big rebound in the NASDAQ uh, because of technology. And technology, of course, is an issue, especially big tech, is a, an industry that has a lot of business with China. Then it goes both ways. A lot of big tech companies in the U.S. have invested in Chinese tech companies. A lot of big tech companies in the U.S. get investment from China and also supplies and, and parts and labor from, from China. So it flows both ways. As those issues get, uh, as we work towards a resolution with China, Tech companies are going to benefit. That obviously will help the will help the Nasdaq to some extent. Industrials are another area that's obviously part of the Dow, a big piece of that. Uh, they are many of the big giant industrial companies do a lot of foreign business, uh, so they also will benefit. And in fact, that's what you've seen if you look at some of the outperforming sectors we saw in Q4. It was the defensive areas, it was utilities, it was real estate, it was healthcare, it was places where people go to hide consumer yeah. staples. This year so far, it's been the exact opposite. The bottom performers of Q4 are on the top now and vice versa. All right. Thank you so much for being with us. Randy Frederick, 10 seconds. Where should we go to have barbecue in Austin? Well, everyone hears a lot about Franklin and Salt Lake, but my personal favorite is a very easy one to get to, and you don't have to stand in line for three hours. It's Rudy's. Rudy's for you know, the barbecue that you love. Randy Frederick, Vice President of Trading and Derivatives at Schwab, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios.
Interesting news out this morning. Apple and Goldman Sachs uh, will begin testing a jointly developed credit card with their employees in the next few weeks. Uh, the, car, the card will be paired with new iPhone software features that will help users manage their finances. To help us kind of dig through this story and all things uh, kind of e-payments is David Ritter, payments and specialty finance analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. He's based in Princeton, New Jersey, but luckily for us, he joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio here in New York today. So Dave, thanks for being here. Sure. So. What are Goldman and Apple trying to do here? What's behind this, this new card? Well, look, I think they're trying to reach a millennial customer. Uh, what's interesting about it is this is Goldman's very first credit card. And what's also interesting is it looks like they're going to try to do it themselves. So they're coming into a business that is dominated by four or five companies, you know, Citi, Chase, B of A, Amex. That's it. They control the whole business. And here comes, here comes Goldman. So, um, they must have offered really sweet terms to Apple, but on the other hand, Goldman's been really active as a fintech investor. Uh, they bought a company about a year ago called Clarity Money, which helps folks manage their money. And so it kind of fits with, it sounds like, what they're trying to integrate into the new, um, the new iPhone features. So here's what I'm, I'm struck by. Uh, Lisa Ellis of Moffitt Nathanson said that it is surprising that Apple chose Goldman Sachs and not Synchrony Financial, which is uh, more accustomed to arrangements like this. Do we have any sense of what kinds of sweeteners Goldman Sachs offered to Apple to sort of solidify this agreement? Well, you know, at the end of the day, I think if they're trying to make their entry into the credit card business, this is the way to do it with a real high profile name. But how do you compete? I mean, they can compete with the big guys on funding costs, right? They have a huge deposit base that they're growing rapidly. But uh, how do they do it on expenses? Uh, they're going to have to invest up to $200 million even to get off the ground. So, um, you know, I think that they've decided this is a loss leader and it's a big name and we'll see where it takes us into different directions. So, Dave, I know you spend a lot of time on the, on the growing e-payments business. How are consumers generally thinking about the privacy issues here? Every time you, you enter a credit card number somewhere or, right. or you know, that's an issue, but it doesn't seem to be slowing the e-payments business at all. Well, you know, the company that really stands out among all others is PayPal. And it's interesting because they have a long track record. You know, it sounds crazy to say a company that's only you know, 15 years old has a long track record, but there is a trust factor there that you see the newer ones that have come along like Apple Pay and Samsung Pay and all these pays that haven't caught on just don't have that trust. So people will use it, they'll use it online, they'll use it on their phone. They just have that trust element. So I'm just trying to figure out why would people choose this credit card over any others? It's a good question because typically the hook, even for the millennials, the rewards you get, right? So Chase's Sapphire car was a huge hit with millennials when it launched a few years ago. But it turns out that big upfront bonus wasn't sustainable. Six months in, they, they canned it, right? And so this is supposedly going to pay a 2% cash back reward too. What's different about that? You can get that anywhere. You can use your Mint app or your any number of apps to manage your finances. Is it neat that it's integrated with the iPhone? I guess for real iPhone fans, they like that, but it's just as easy to open up something separate. Can you imagine if all of a sudden there's a little voice that's actually a recording of your mother saying, do you really need that? Do you really, need do, that? Do you really want to buy that? Exactly. Yeah, crazy. That's what, they're, that's what it sounds like <laughs> they're going for. So Dave, are we going to a cashless society? I mean, there's a little restaurant, fast food place down the street from the Bloomberg headquarters here that just opened. They don't take cash. So, and I know a lot of young folks literally do not carry cash. 
I don't use cash myself anymore, but that's just because I'm a payments dork. And you know, what do you I, use? I use my uh, my city double cash card, so I get two percent on everything. So I use that anywhere I can go, but I don't use the fancy payment apps. Occasionally I'll use an Apple Pay, but that that's what I use. But uh, that's kind of where things are. But it seems are. like the trend but is nice. going to. Well, there's a pushback though on that. So a lot of um, interest groups have said, hey, you're excluding tens of millions of US folks that are unbanked, that have no bank account, because you know half of folks in the US have less than $400 to their name. Sad, but true. Um, they have to use cash. So I don't think cashless society is coming anytime soon. And my dad told me stories like that. Uh, Dave, when I started with IBM in 1950, we were having meetings talking about cash was going away in 10 years. And here we are. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you so much for being with us, David Ritter, payments and specialty finance analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. A fascinating story. Uh, interesting to know what exactly Goldman Sachs promised Apple to get this marquee name and how they plan to sustain this over the long run without some kind of key incentive to bring in new customers. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.